welcome to XI to I, a podcast series from TableXI. I'm Noel Rappin, and today I'm talking to Ali Flucky, a UX developer at TableXI. Ali, you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got to TableXI? Sure. Thanks for having me, too. It's awesome. It's my first one, so be nice to me. I actually, I've been in software development for almost five years now. I actually started off as a COBOL developer for Nationwide Insurance, uh, which is crazy because there's like hardly any front end to that whatsoever. Are you like the youngest COBOL programmer in the world? Probably. I think at Nationwide, I literally was the youngest one that they had on staff in all locations, which was pretty interesting. And yeah, so I uh, started off doing COBOL for Nationwide, ended up figuring out that there were newer, more modern languages like Ruby that were pretty fun. And um, eventually took a couple of girl development classes actually to um, learn a little bit more about Ruby. Got into a consultancy in Columbus, Ohio that offered a Ruby apprenticeship program. And I did that for six months, got hired on as a junior Rails dev, and did that for like a little over a year before I realized that everything that I loved working on was everything in the browser. And so I was lucky enough to be in a position there where they actually helped me pivot from back-end developer to front-end developer and paired me with a bunch of other really great front-end and design-type people uh, where I got to learn and ramp up my skills. So I've been doing front-end for exclusively a little over three years now. And uh, moved here to Chicago about two years ago, was working as a front-end developer for another consultancy. And that's when I first started learning about TableXI. Last year, I actually worked for as a front-end developer for another product company. And then when the landscape over there changed and our whole dev team actually lost their jobs, that's when I actually came over to TableXI, did the full interview process, and have been here for just about a year now. Yeah, almost exactly a year, I think. Yeah, exactly. In about a month. It's crazy. And this is actually the first place that I've been where I'm on the design team. Before, I was always kind of the styling person on a back-end team or, you know, the, the lone styling person. So now here, I really love the opportunity that I have to work with other creative like-minded designer type people and uh, really grow my skill set in other like visual and interaction and just overall user experience areas, as well as being able to really grow as a UX developer. So on a day-to-day basis, do you do more uh, implementation kind of work, design kind of work? Like what's your preferred mix? I'm mostly on the implementation side and I like it that way. I'm that weirdo that loves CSS. Yeah, we'll be talking about that. (laughs) Fantastic. So, and I actually, I went to art school before I became a software developer, or I guess I did two years at art school and I wanted to become a graphic designer, but honestly, I was never really good at being able to get what I see in my head out on paper. And now that I work with people like Rex and Yana who work here on our design team, they are just so much better at getting their thoughts out onto paper and having them be visually aesthetically pleasing. I can speak the design language, if you will, but as far as creating, that is something that I need more practice in. So I actually like being on the implementation side and working with designers to make sure that we're building the thing that they were envisioning when they were thinking about it. Cool. I want to talk more about the implementation part. TableXI has a sort of a, a unique approach to how it handles front-end implementation, and in particular, how it handles CSS, and to a slightly lesser extent, the HTML markup. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk, first of all, about what kind of problems are really common in large CSS 
code structures. I think a lot of backend developers aren't really used to thinking of CSS as code or as something that needs to be organized until it kind of gets all tangled and, <laughs> and they can't figure anything out. Yep. So what kinds of problems do you normally see in bodies of CSS code that we try to solve with our sort of general approach? First and foremost, too, a lot of our applications, since we have a design team and since we have you know the user experience side of things, we kind of favor custom development over using things like Bootstrap or Foundation as frameworks. Every once in a while, there will be a situation like an admin panel where you know we want something that's going to be able to be built very quickly and without a lot of UX or design attention. So we'll actually pull in something like Bootstrap or another uh, library to create a theme. And then that way it's easy to be kind of isolated and contained within and of itself. And then we can have full custom development on the things that we need custom development on. Because one of the things that we run into a lot, if we are in a situation where we pull a library in at the beginning of a project, you might pull in Bootstrap or Foundation, and then you, in order to make it not look like a Bootstrap or Foundation website, you need to do a little bit more customization and overriding of those base library elements. So then you get into a situation where you have like specificity wars, where you have, you know, a large, big file directories, like lots of little files, and you never really know where to put something or whether or not you should be overriding a library file or if you should be adding your own component. So does that make it hard to find where to even modify stuff when you want to make changes? Absolutely. Then you end up with like highly specific elements where we end up having to like, you know, target the P tag under a section header that's nested under a container or something like that, rather than being like having discrete classes that we know where to go to look for them. And we know that it's not going to be overridden by another file somewhere else in our asset pipeline. So starting with a library and building out your own customizations can make it hard to predict how new markup is going to behave because you may sort of inadvertently run into some sort of patch that you don't know even know is there? Yeah, absolutely. Responsiveness, too, is a real big area where this happens. You know, we might have to make a font size change at mobile screens, but then you realize that you're only targeting one specific thing, and then you have to add media queries and multiple files, and then you never really know exactly where to look for everything happening. That's another thing that I've seen before, too, where we add just like a responsive dot. SCSS at the end of our, all of our style sheets that then handles responsiveness for the entire application and it's all in one file. So you, like, unless you're actually using the find in your editor to actually specifically find where those things are, it can be very, very difficult. So that makes it especially hard to predict the behavior of the website at different size of device. Absolutely. So what kinds of things do we do to mitigate that? I guess we don't start with libraries. I know that we have kind of our own custom frameworks, probably a little bit too big. It's not yeah. quite a custom framework, but we do have our own custom like structure. Yeah. Um, so one thing that happens, and I don't, we have like a, we have the starter repo that we kind of clone all of our new Rails apps from, and it has an existing structure, file structure and naming conventions for our style sheets. And then within some of those files, we'll actually start out with a, with a few base elements, things that kind of rarely change from project to project. So for example, that'd be something like a, the layout and container classes, as well as like the grid. The grid is something that 
we have a mix in that actually builds most of our grid classes. And then it can be customized to different breakpoints and different widths, uh, just by changing some variables. And so that's something that can be customized when you're actually doing the application styling. And is the grid then really like, I mean, I, I don't do a lot of CSS development. I kind of at the point where I can like hand wave and copy stuff, but the grid is kind of, especially if you're dealing with responsive multiple size devices, the grid is, is critical to making all of that work or am I? No, absolutely. That's exactly right. And that's actually why we've tried to standardize on one. And that's why it's included in the starter repo is because the, the current implementation implementation that we have right now is agreed upon within the other, like those working as UX developers on projects as being like, we all agree upon it right now. It might change in the future, but, um, you know, we like where it's going and it's easy for us to reason about. And so we want to get the overall, like all of the backend developers into a place where they feel comfortable using it too. Is there anything in particular that's different or unusual about our grid implementation versus Bootstrapper Foundation's grid? Not so much. In fact, even like the naming is pretty close to what you would find in most other library type grids. I think we just like the fact that it's really customizable and we don't have to then rely on an external grid and we can name it whatever we want. So whatever's working for us right now, we can then tailor it to fit our needs. I think of it as being a hair simpler than some of the implementations I've seen. Yeah. The naming of the, especially like the bootstrap grid has always been confusing to me because I never, it's like, what does MD mean? And like, we actually use full names. So we'll use things like uh, medium dash dash six. And if it's a 12 column grid, six would then be 50%. I'm a big fan of not using abbreviations and variable names all over the place. Yeah. Absolutely. It seems like you're saving time, but then you you just can't figure out what anything says. Yeah, I just think the cognitive overhead of it is not quite worth it all the time. So when you're working on a new feature, you're working from a specification that the designer's given you, which is usually a mock-up in Envision or some other similar layout tool, correct? Mm-hmm. What's your process for turning that into the markup that is the final markup? In a- Almost every single one of our applications that we build, we include a living style guide and we actually use a Ruby gem called hologram for that. And so usually at the beginning of a project, the designer will kind of get out ahead of development and do some amount of actual visual design. So they'll do things like pick colors, pick fonts, and create a visual system that then is handed off to our UX developers. With like the basic topography and spacing and things like that too? Yep. A lot of times we'll see things like colors will be included in that. All of the different fonts that we could potentially be using throughout the application will be included, as well as some other like base element stylings, like potentially forms and inputs. Buttons is a big one that is almost always included. And then we'll take that and we'll actually build out components within Hologram to have a way to communicate those styles to our backend developers. So can you define component there? Because I think that's an unusual concept in... CSS design. It's also hard because when I say component, sometimes it means interchangeable things. So I'll try and be a little bit more specific too. When we're building elements within a page, and I actually have a more detailed example if we want to talk about it later around how we do CSS componentization as like a thing and as a philosophy. And the idea around it is, let's say you have a page that you're doing some like articles on. And an article has multiple little things within it, like a photo and a title and a description. But there are times when we actually don't want to scope our styles specifically to that 
thing. Like for instance, if it's an article, we kind of want to make it generic enough that if we have something like a blog post, it could that that styling could then be reused in another situation. So instead of naming it like article, we might name it something like entry. And then we'll create elements within that component. And so we have like a base component or as an entry and it then contains the photo and the title and the description. And each of those is kind of broken out into individual styles as well. So when you're laying that out in the code, I know that we build up our directories. So we have one directory for like really basic common elements and another directory for components. Yeah. So you start off and you create a new file for a component and then like, do you create a class name that includes all of the other ones? Do you have a bunch of separate class names that are all related by naming convention? Like, do you depend on the nested behavior of the markup to match the behavior of your CSS? Yes. So for instance, when we have the, and I actually made, I wrote out a little code pen example um, that we can include in the notes and we can kind of follow along here. Yeah. We'll have a URL uh, for you to look at in the notes. Awesome. So we have something like an entry. And so that would be the, the block. Oh, one other thing. We use the BEM naming convention. BEM? BEM. B-E-M, which stands for block element modifier. Okay. I feel like we should also include a link there too. Yes. And it high level is this theory of naming your classes as those kinds of things. So you have a block level element that is kind of the container. It's one thing that would be like your entry or even something like container would be a block level element. So we have this new component and it's, it's an entry or an article. And so are all of our CSS classes that belong to that component would have names that start with entry. Yep. For instance, when we add a class to like the image for our entry, it would be called entry underscore underscore image. The underscore underscore is actually from the BEM naming convention. And that's how you differentiate between a block level element and an element and a modifier. So you have blocks, you have elements, and you have modifiers. If you had entry underscore underscore image, that indicates that it's a, a sub block. And then yep. what would be an example of a modifier then? So that'd be something, and then actually in the code pen example, I've created a modifier for entry that is entry dash dash featured. And the dash dash is how you know that it's a modification. And that is a, we use those in situations where we need to do additional or overwrite a little bit of styling for the base component. So think of entry as the base component and it has its own set of styles and then we need to add a special background color for the featured entry. And so that's when we would actually change the background color under the entry dash dash featured class. So that would be things like highlighted or active. Yeah. Or, so, and, and I think the important point about that is that, that rather than have that be two separate CSS classes like dot entry and then also dot active, it's one class called Entry dash dash active. Yes. And it's also important to know too that we build modifiers so that they actually add on to the base component. So you, it very rarely are you going to see something that has a class of only the, the modifier. So if you ever saw something that was just entry dash dash featured without dot entry or like the class entry on it as well, that is kind of rare and we tend to not do that. A, a featured element then would have both the class, the CSS class entry and the CSS class entry dash dash 
highlighted or, or featured, sorry, entry dash dash featured, yep. rather than just being entry dash dash featured or, or having entry and then a, like a generic featured class. Is that? That's absolutely right. So is the goal there to prevent naming collisions or, or to prevent unexpected interactions between different CSS classes throughout the code base? Yeah, I think it's also kind of an artifact from using the BEM naming convention. Because there's definitely times when I create a modification that then I later realize that there's enough difference to it that it actually sh- should be a, a separate component. And that's all, you know, practice and learning experiences. But it's definitely, it's one of those things where, like, for instance, when we have a container is a really good example of this. Because we have, like, our dot container classes will have a max width set on them. And then also potentially a little bit of padding. And those are our layout and structural classes. But then we have also a container dash dash tight that modifies how much padding is added to the container. But the dot container dash dash tight without the container class base level element won't get the other styles that are being added, like the max width. And so it's important to think of these as actual modifications. And then the moment that you have it just a completely separate scenario, that's a new component. It seems like you don't really depend on nested CSS a whole lot. That's very true. Yeah, absolutely. And is that also to prevent surprises, basically? Yeah. So CSS stands for cascading style sheets. And so therefore, almost everything that we do is actually to battle the cascade, <laughs> which is weird that we're trying to get around the thing that it actually is supposed to do. That's interesting. Why, why is that then? Mostly because of specificity issues. So if you have something like, let's say we have a style written where we have dot container and then nested underneath it, we have uh, the P tag, the paragraph tag. Mm-hmm. So that's going to style all the paragraphs that would live within a container different than a, just a generic paragraph tag that lives without a container. And so then you run into issues of, again, specificity and not knowing exactly where to change things. So I, I guess you keep, saying, you keep saying specificity, and I think I, I might want a little bit more explicit definition there. So yeah. it, it sounds to me like you're trying to prevent the browser from having to make a choice as to what styles actually get applied to each element, that you're trying to make it as explicit as possible. Yep. And reduce as much confusion and overwriting too. So there's been definitely times where we open up an inspector and we see on the right-hand side, we have all the CSS declarations. If you see a ton of things that are crossed out, that's a pretty good indicator that we have a lot of like overwriting happening. And that's where you can get into specificity problems where styles are being added that you weren't expecting. So what would a specificity problem look like in practice? Like what kind of setup would give you that kind of problem? Almost every time I've had to use Bootstrap, I run into specificity problems, mostly because Bootstrap by nature actually does target base level elements like the P tag or the UL tag, but scope it to a parent class. You then have to be careful about, you could then have a situation like the container and the P tag example from before. If you have one style happening for the P that lives inside a container, but not happening on the basic paragraph tag, then you can add a paragraph in on a page that doesn't have a container and wonder why it doesn't have the same styling as the other one on this other page that does live within a container. And that can be very hard to track down, I'd imagine. Exactly. So then you end up like doing a spelunking exercise through your style sheets, trying to find like that one paragraph tag that's adding that one style. 
And thankfully the inspector kind of helps with that. It'll kind of show you like where the file's at potentially sometimes with rails. It's a little bit harder because it, you know, minifies everything. But one way that we combat this is actually through just the way that we organize our files. And this is based off of a methodology called ITCSS, which stands for Inverted Triangle CSS. Mm -hmm. And there's actually um, a YouTube video where Harry Roberts, the guy who actually thought about all this, gives a presentation, and I highly recommend everybody goes watch it. Yeah, we'll put that in the notes too. Awesome. And it basically, it, the way that it, you can reason about it is the inverted triangle model is actually a really great way to think about it. And at the highest level, you know, at the widest range, you have the things that are most accessible to your entire application. That's where we put our variables because then as we go down the triangle and the specificity gets more increased. So variables that would be covering things like background colors, font size. Yep. And in the code pen, I actually, I tried to give a pretty good example of like some things that we do add variables for, um, measurements, colors, fonts, things like that. And the way that we think about it is that those variables are then accessible and can be used by any other style sheet that's in the application. And we want them to be, in fact. That's why we create variables. So then the next level, one level deeper, is like tools. And tools is something, too, that sometimes if you're not using SAS, you may not necessarily be able to use tools. But this is things like functions or mix-ins or actual like pieces of SAS that are building things. This is where we have like our grid mix-in that builds all of our grid classes. These are things that don't tend to change a lot, and they're actually not touching any styling parts of the application yet either. So like with just the variables and the tools directories in your style sheets, nothing in your style in your application should be styled. The moment that we get into actual styling is one level deeper where we do the styling of the base elements. And so this is really where we're only styling the actual elements that exist in the browser. So no classes. This would be things like the unordered list or UL tag paragraph or headers. Well, it, yeah, all of the heading H elements and things like that, table. And we do that so that then you have a basic styling of all of the browser elements that, that potentially could exist. And this is where I would actually take the visual style guide that the designers have created and use it to write all the basic styles to live for these base elements. And then it would be, we would create hologram declarations so that they build out to the hologram style guide. Right, which then everybody can access. Yep. And that way it is a visual tool for everybody who's building and using the website around how heading elements should look, how inputs should look, how buttons should look, without necessarily doing the more specific to the application component styles. Okay, and then the next level is the components? Next level, we actually have a thing in between, and that's where we put our structure, which theoretically you could probably put structure inside components too, but we kind of like it to be separate. So what constitutes structure then? So that'd be our grid and our layout. Like layout is where we keep our container classes, where we set our max width and our kind of like padding. So the kinds of things that would go in the, the elements of the Rails layout to you, like the things that would be around the, yeah. the header itself, sidebar, footer, that kind of stuff? I could see definitely putting header and sidebar in there too, especially if you have more structural 
uh, layout things happening. Like for instance, I just recently had to build a header that was actually a sidebar. And so that required an actual page layout that was a little bit different than how we normally just like where, you know, you have a header at the top and then you have your main content, and then you have a footer. We actually had to do a little bit more of a structural layout that needed to be removed from the actual header component styling, if that makes sense. We needed to like build the bones of that first before then we could have, you know, the background color of the header and the links that live there. So after structure, then we get into components and that's everything that's unique to this project. This changes from app to app too. So it's kind of hard to say like what exactly lives in here, but more than likely you'll end up with things like header, footer, forms. Forms, definitely. Things that would be like articles yeah. or events. Entry, or, like yeah. in our pot, in our uh, code pen example, it would live in components, tags, widget. I mean, you can put anything in there. <laughs> that's the one that's a little harder to talk about. Right, but those those are intended to be. I mean, I think of a component as being like something that is a discrete chunk. You can point to it on the screen and say, like, "Yep, this is my component." This is a different component. Yeah. And it's things that we have to like write ourselves too. So when we think of like custom design, that's a good way to kind of think about it. Whereas like an H2 is going to look fairly similar in every browser, regardless of like, you know, with, if we don't add any styling to it, it's going to look pretty similar across every browser. But these are things that we actually need specific styling for that match our styling needs that the designer has set. And then we actually also use, include a last folder called utilities, and that's explicitly for utilities and overrides. So that's actually a place where you would keep like helper classes like, you know, is warning or is hidden or is shown. And it's the only place that we would ever kind of accept having a exclamation point important. Right. And we have modifiers that don't have base classes too. Yes, exactly. And these are classes, they are the most specific and since they are included in our application last, they will overwrite anything else that's happening because of the way that we've written like everything else. And so that is partially how we get past the specificity problem. We try and make sure that we are organizing all of our elements so that they happen in specificity order and kind of building on the layer above. I highly recommend watching the video. He also has visual examples that are a little bit easier to reason about than me just talking. <laughs> Is there something else that you want to say about how this works in practice, like how it makes uh, development easier over a long code base? Yeah. Or some other piece of this that you haven't talked about that you want to mention? I think from a high level, I we've found success with this simply because it reduces the amounts of questions of like, where do I put something? Or where do I even look for something? If we know that we're looking for the styles that happen on an H2 element, then we know we're going to go to the base directory and look for text or headings or something like that. And if we're looking for something more specific, we know we're going to be in the components directory. The hard part is knowing how generic to make your components, when to create a modification. And the unfortunate thing about that is that there's no real right answer. I mean, I go back and I look at the apps that I built just even a year ago when I first started here at TableXI, and I was making, you could say, the wrong decision, but at the time it was totally right. <laughs> Different decisions. Yeah, exactly. 
Not wrong. And that's one thing that I love about Table XI is that we're always kind of growing and we're always using the things that we've learned from the last project or the last iteration to get better at the things that we're working on currently. So the way that I wrote something last year is not the way that I write it today, and it won't be the way that I write it next year, and uh, I'm cool with that. Yeah, and you, you, all the people who do implementation collaborate and share ideas and good practices and pitfalls as they come across them. So. Yeah, we recently started doing... Um, retros specifically around like the front end UX development code and to talk about things like, Hey, I ran into a weird issue with the grid builder in this one project. How do we account for it? And so we're constantly kind of changing, which also (laughs) I think makes it a little difficult because the moment you get a handle on something, it can potentially change, but it does ensure that we're always moving forward, if you will. Yeah. Do you have any other resources that people could look for in terms of other generic CSS? If people are just trying to learn CSS things, places they can go, you would really recommend? Yeah, I really enjoy the um, Learn CSS Layout. Yeah, that's what, it's actually called learnlayout.com. It's got some really great, like, just really quick ways to think about, especially, like, from the ground up. Like, CSS is one of those things that when it literally is the thing that does structural and also like sugar, it's hard to know everything in the middle. Yeah. You don't want to make your structure out of sugar or vice versa. Exactly. So knowing the difference between the two and when to use each uh, and how to actually build up from structure to sugar is an important part of CSS. And it's actually, it's one of the main things that we focus on here as we're developing. Trying to think of other great resources. I really like, I mean, if people are looking to learn CSS, I recommend Code Academy. They've got some really great HTML, CSS, quick little exercises there. And uh, honestly, the list apart, the, if you go to alistapart.com, those people are the ones who are actually writing all of the new CSS specifications. So they know what's up. And from that same group, they have the Book Apart series, which I highly recommend. And it covers everything from design and user research to actual, you know, very technical, like we were talking about today, as far as UX development and front-end code. Just recently, they put out one around SVGs that I've been meaning to read. And that's my main source of information is that group of folks. Cool. Great. Good stuff. In that case, thank you, Allie, for talking to me today. And let me just say that XI2I is brought to you by Table XI. We are 35 meticulous and curious minds in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Our partners trust us to create innovative solutions that drive their business forward. Let's work together. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And you can join us in a couple weeks for another episode of XI2I. Thanks, I'm Noel Rappin. And I'm Allie. Yay. Thanks, everybody.